Welcome to the first Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is really to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. And for a first episode, we arguably couldn't be joined by better guests. Today, I'm with Glenn Bradley, um, Chair of the Northern Ireland Business and Human Rights Forum and Louise Nicholl, Corporate Head of Human Rights, Food Sustainability and Food Packaging at Marks and Spencer's. Glenn, can I start with you? For anybody unfamiliar with the work of the forum, can you tell me how it came into existence and what it aims to achieve? Well, first, thanks, Laura, for having us along. Um, The Northern Ireland Business and Human Rights Forum was established in 2015, and it was to explain how labour and human rights are relevant to business, uh, share information and promote good practices. The membership includes business, NGOs, trade unions and government departments with support from the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission. Um, I myself have been a pioneer since the inaugural meeting, and thus probably why I'm the chair. Um, Our mission is to ensure that the United Nations guiding principles for business and human rights are translated to business easy-speak language and are accessible to all. In addition, we're committed to capacity building through broadening engagement, developing guidance and other practical tools to promote the value of human rights in business and to obviously ensure that human rights are prevalent throughout corporate supply chains. I was elected by my peers to the role of chair, and I was re-elected again there in March recently. Congratulations. So you invited Louise to come to a meeting of the forum today. What prompted you to approach Marks and Spencers? Marks and Spencers are renowned in the ethical trade and business and human rights uh, platform, international platform, as being pioneers. They had joined the Ethical Trading Initiative at its inaugural meeting in 1998-1999 and have been active leaders in the Ethical Trading Initiative since then. Whenever I joined the Ethical Trading Initiative with the business in 2005 and I started out on my process of training, Lou was actually one of my trainers and so she was someone who taught me a lot of what I know. She was also someone who, as a role model within ethical trade and business and human rights that I looked up to. So for me, it was very important for her to come along and relate to the Marks and Spencer story and its leadership within the, the role of business and human rights on the international stage. Louise, drawing on from that, what does it actually mean to be ethical within Marks and Spencer's? It's a great question. I think really... Um, very simply, it's about doing the right thing. It's about not just saying you're going to do it, but actually doing it. And it's about the way we treat people, uh, be they our colleagues, be they um, people who are in the supply chain. Um, but just really thinking about the way we treat people um, and making sure we do that to the best impact that we possibly can have. Absolutely. And whenever I teach business ethics, one of the questions that invariably comes up is, well, is there a business case for business ethics? From your experience with Marks and Spencers, would you say that there is a business case for being ethical? Yeah, very clear business case. Not always what you might expect it to be. So I think it's about um, recognising... Uh, It's a key motivator for why people choose to uh, come and work. Uh, So we know it's the number one reason why people choose to come and work for Marks and Spencers is because they think through the power of doing work, they'll do good, um, which I think is very powerful. It's also about recognising that when you feel like you're treated well, when you feel that you're properly trained, you know that you're much better at your job. And that means that 
productivity will be better, the quality of the product that you produce, the customer service will be better. Um, so they're all key motivators. And, you know, when you think about it as a business and you think about the cost, labour is such a very significant part of the cost of your business. And, uh, you know, the cost of recruiting somebody, when someone chooses to leave you, um, that, that loss of retention of staff, that costs you money. And, you know, everybody that you have to train, there's a co training cost. So I think it's helping people to unpick the cost is important. Yes. One thing that I have realised through teaching students for engaging with members of the public is there tends to be quite a degree of cynicism around business ethics. People say to me, well, that must be a short course. What do you do with the rest of the day? Or surely that's an oxymoron. You can't be an ethical business. What do you do when you encounter that kind of cynicism in your role? Well, I, th I think it, it, people are right to be cynical. And I think that's actually good for business, that they're challenged to explain why they believe in business ethics. For me, actually, I did a piece of work for the board back in 2014, which involved us thinking about wherever the business touched people. And part of that piece of work is I went back to the Marks and Spencer's archives that are in Leeds University. And I looked at the history of the business right from the very, very beginning of our founders where um, uh, Michael Marks put in uh, boards to raise people's feet off the floor so that they didn't get so cold. He provided them with hot meals at lunchtime because he'd worked out that that increased the productivity uh, and the better customer service through to the fact that we were we introduced healthcare facilities before there was a national health service and we introduced training provision long before people understood that you needed to train people to do a good job. And I think that's always been at the heart and the culture of Marks and Spencers is has been about doing the right thing. But I do think, you know, it's one thing to say you do the right thing, to publish your policies, to turn up at the right collaborative groups. But I think it's absolutely right to be asking, show me the evidence that you actually do these things. And so that's been really important to MS to be transparent um, and to actively show what we do and uh, to put ourselves under the scrutiny of having um, external auditors come in and see what we're doing, to take part in benchmarks. Because I think people need evidence that shows that it's not just talk but it's real action. And one of the areas that you have really focused on, certainly going back at least to 15 plus years, has been human rights. Why did Marks and Spencer decide to focus upon that area? Well, I think, I think the reality, um, as um, it, it's something we'd always done, but back in 1998, we formalised that approach. We published our own code of conduct. Um, we started uh, in a much more structured way to do ethical audits to really understand what was going on in our supply chain. We joined the collaborative initiative, like the Ethical Trading Initiative, which brings together uh, NGOs, trade unions and uh, business. And the whole purpose there is that often... Um, we don't understand where we might have a negative impact. So actually in the room to have other people helping us to see a different perspective helps you to understand what you need to do to improve. Um, and so that's been uh, the journey that we started back in 1998. I think we've learned an awful lot along the way. We've learned, one of the things we've learned is that audit is only one tool in the toolbox and that really this, at heart of this, this is about relationships with your suppliers. It's about really understanding what makes each other tick. Um, and it's about understanding how can we do business in a positive way that impacts people. And therefore, it's not about I do this because my customer asked me to. It's a compliance-based thing. Actually, we do this because this makes good business sense. And my 
premise has been to move that switch from doing an audit um, once a year and then they can forget about treating people uh, to trying to encourage how do we incentivise doing the right thing 365 days of the year um, so that's part of the rhythm and routine and that involves changing the mindset which says management really wants to engage with the shop floor, they want to understand what the shop floor is thinking um, and uh, then if they understand how the shop floor is thinking then they can make sure that they've got the right uh, benefits and wages um, that will match and and part of that has been being able to draw the linkage between ethics, environment and lean manufacturing has been really important in that um, because it, if you can understand that if you've motivated people, if you've made them feel at ease to be able to uh, share what they're thinking, do you know what? All the best ideas bubble up from the shop floor. Mm -hmm. And that's how you can end up being much more innovative, much quicker to work out how you can uh, produce a product twice as fast as you thought you could produce it because the people who every day are making that product will have all those good ideas. So it's making people think this isn't, I'm not doing this just to understand their concerns. I'm doing this because I also really want to understand their ideas. And then you create a culture which everybody feels part of. Yes. And I imagine there's also an early warning system as well there that if there was something that was an issue of concern, if people feel confident and comfortable about bringing that to the attention of managers, that's in your organisation's best interest. Yes, isn't it? Because, you know, if you could stop that before it became an issue, just by understanding the way I speak to you or the way we've introduced that policy has the following unintended consequences, you can nip it in the bud before it ever became an issue. Absolutely. Glenn, obviously Marks and Spencer's is a massive organisation, but you spend a lot of your time dealing with SMEs. Um, how would you say their approach to human rights differs? Do they think it's something that's not necessarily as relevant to them or perhaps something that would be too difficult for them to address? Well, Hardscape is an SME. Our turnover last year was only £27 million, and if we look at the operation in Ireland, it was just over £6 million. So Hardscape is very much an SME, but we have volunt voluntarily uh, committed ourselves to the Modern Slavery Act. We're on the Modern Slavery Act register, even though we don't need to be. Um, so SMEs are actively pursuing business and human rights, are actively engaging in ethical trade. Uh, but it does frighten people. I think what frightens people is ignorance because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what business and human rights is. And as Lou stated, it is really just making the conscious decision to say, I am going to trade ethically. I am going to do this correctly. I am going to ensure that there is living wages paid to our employees. Now, that means that the product you're selling won't always be the cheapest. And indeed, in my industry, which is international quarrying and stone industry for public realm use, you know, most EU tenders that I would apply for, it's lowest cost wins without ethical caveats. But we will never, ever be the cheapest in selling stone. So it's about putting the message out there. It's about creating the understanding of what business and human rights actually means. And we, as a corporate business, came into it through um, efficiencies. We had received 50 containers of stone that was out of tolerance, not made correctly. There was wood weevils, not indigenous to the UK in them, in 2005. And that prompted me to go to Rajasthan to find out why that had happened. And frankly, what I found appalled me. I found child labour. I, I found slave labour. Um, and it was about then recognising that, you know, we were buying this, we were driving this, we were the drivers of it. 
um, by seeking cheap products and about recognising that we had to act responsibly and then about changing the process of how we did engage with suppliers. We then got our boots on the ground at Origin, working with suppliers, demonstrating to them how they could be ethical. And that actually changed the quality process of the goods that we were delivering because we had a huge migrant workforce, for example, and over the time of ensuring that there was contracts of employment, they should be eradicated, that migrant workforce. So we weren't getting a skill set that was moving every six months. We maintained the workforce to, and promoted them to be skilled master masons. So again, it was investment in their training. You know, where we can comfortably sit now as a business and when we say that we will deliver to the standards that we work to, which is EN thirteen forty one, forty two, and 43, that we know that those are exacting and can quite happily deliver a product that is efficiently made ethically. Well, really, to be honest, that just goes to show the fact that you can have every policy and procedure in place, but in reality, things can at times just go wrong. Whenever that kind of situation arises in Marks and Spencers, Louise, what does the organisation do? So if that issue arises, um, and when it arises, because let's be honest, if you think of any group of people, uh, there's often a person who will choose to be exploitative or be a bully Um, And what you're wanting is to make sure you've got trained HR professionals and you've made everybody aware of their rights so that 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 issue is quickly raised and dealt with. And I think from M&S's perspective, where we've always been is we want to know about issues because we want to do something about them as soon as we possibly can. So if we take something like modern slavery, if you look at the number of modern slavery statements there are that are out uh, that, that are out at the moment that say our business has never found modern slavery, it's got nothing to do with us, I tell you now, they are wrong because every business touches modern slavery and what we've got to be, be is much more aware of the potential for modern slavery and make sure our biases aren't making us think it's not there. So Marks and Spencers have found modern slavery and in each case what we're interested in is to find the issue, get those victims to safety and bring the perpetrators to justice. And what we've done is get our CEO to go out and say to the suppliers, please tell us about modern slavery, we want to find it. And actually what we found is that by telling suppliers that we want to find it, that's actually made people much more confident to say, oh, do you know what? I've got something. I think it might be. I'm not sure. And then we're there to help them. Because I imagine that would create an enormous amount of fear. Well, you know, if we report something, will we lose this sort of very valuable um, and high profile contract? But if they feel comfortable and safe in terms of bringing that information to you, it really could be to the benefit of everybody involved. In terms of what are the most pressing topics in relation to human rights for Marks and Spencers at the moment, what are you most concerned about or where you're placing the most attention? So we did a lot of work um, for our first human rights report that we launched um, in terms of really understanding what were the key salient issues that were affecting our business um, and really mapping where all the risks were, um, building on top of it what programmes we'd done and which programmes worked. And that led us to deciding our strategy need to focus on three key areas of focus. One was about taking a leadership role in tackling modern slavery. The next was about really understanding in-work poverty, because it's one thing to pay a living wage, but that doesn't actually mean that people um, are feeling better off. So really understanding that and unpicking that and understanding what a responsible employer could do. And then the last one was about genuinely creating a more inclusive uh, culture. And that is about, obviously, about 
uh, understanding gender and the impacts of gender, um, but it's also about understanding uh, whether or not migrants feel equally treated um, and really starting to unpick that. So there are three areas of focus, and then that's absolutely underpinned by a commitment to decent work. But human rights isn't the only aspect of your job. You're also wear the hat of um, being responsible for food sustainability and food packaging. And it's an area where Marks and Spencer has come in for some criticism before. But equally, we're aware when people go in to buy their produce, they'll want to pick the stuff that is in the most perfect condition or that's beautifully packaged. How do you balance that? How do you balance um, being sustainable with giving the consumer what they actually want? So we've got a a sustainability plan called Plan A because there is no Plan B. Uh, We've only got one planet and we've got to do the very best we can to look after it. And our Plan A strategy has kind of three key elements. One is about helping customers live healthy, more sustainable lifestyles. The second one is really around how can we have the best impact on people. Uh, And the last one is about protecting the planet. And we see all three pieces come together. Now, as you say, in reality, if I take two issues that are very close to my heart at the moment, plastics and food waste, the two things are absolutely uh, linked. Because why do we have packaging? We have packaging because it's got a clear function. It's about protecting that product. And in many cases, it's about extending that product life. So keeping it in the right quality for the longest possible time that you can. But obviously, you know, the, the whole mood has changed about packaging and the challenge is how can we minimise the use of packaging. So you know, our absolute focus is on understanding how can we minimise that packaging, how can we maximise its recyclability, um, but how can we do it in a way that is cognizant of trying to minimise uh, food waste it's a really tough problem and I have to tell you we're grappling it, uh, with it, it at the sounds moment. sounds like maybe some element of it is about sort of technological advancement but a huge part of it is attitudinal change um, both by businesses but also by the consumer about us having to be a bit more responsible mm. um, about having to you know to use our recyclable containers um, about sort of carrying stuff with us create, um, using water bottles and things like that rather than just having these single use plastics so perhaps we have a bit more responsibility um, as well as businesses too. We do. Um, 71% of the food waste occurs in the home. So we have a big job to do to kind of change perceptions. But I think we can take some confidence if we we think M&S was the first retailer to introduce a charge for carrier bags back in 2008. And now... We're in a place where I think most people would know that they needed to take a bag with them when they went out shopping. Um, So we know that we can change behaviours. And I increasingly see people with a reusable cup or taking a reusable water bottle. So I think change is happening. I think if David Attenborough showed us one thing uh, last year with Blue Planet, though, change isn't happening fast enough. And we have to really start to be more cognizant of those uh, consumer choices that we make um, and and genuinely try to do the right thing. Now, we've got some challenges. Um, you know, M&S has been really focusing on how we drive the circular economy, how we really get people to recycle um, their packaging. And we've reduced the number of polymers we use in packaging from 11 to 4, and we're well on the way to getting to one polymer. Um, but we've got a job to do with local authorities. There's so many local authorities, all with different... Um, 
instructions um, and different recycling capabilities, it makes it really hard for uh, consumers to know what to do. So again, we've been really involved in the development of the logos that go on the pack of, of packaging. Um, and uh, we sit on the board of the OPRL. And that's all about trying to help people get the best advice possible. We've been involved with the government in trying to uh, incentivize better local authorities, uh, recycling capabilities. And we're working at the forefront with the um, packaging industry, again, on helping them to think about it. But it's a complex problem. And everybody has a part to play. Everyone has a part to play. Well, to draw the podcast to a conclusion, and in keeping with the theme, I want to start with you, Glenn. What do you think it means to be a good business today? A good business uh, should have ethical principles in my eyes um, and core values that are built around respecting the workforce. Now, I just don't mean the workforce here in the UK or Ireland. I mean the workforce that is throughout the entire supply chain. And you do it by firstly starting to map your supply chain and understanding the mapping of that supply chain. And then you start with Tier 1, working your way down with Tier 1 to Tier 2, three, four, five, six, and so on. And that is the only way that the future uh, will assure that workers are protected and that human rights are not taking place in a corporate supply chain. So for me, good business is core, decent, ethical values. And Louise from Marks and Spencers, would you share similar views to what Glenn's just expressed? I would. I'd absolutely agree with what Glenn has suggested. Um, I I think that 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 is absolutely what we're talking about. And if we could get more businesses to embrace that, um, we'd have the solution sussed. Well, thank you for speaking to me today. I'm certainly going to have to reflect on my own use of plastics and food waste. And um, so thank you so much for joining us, our first podcast, um, Louise and Glenn. It's been thank a you. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.